0: Good, very good morning, I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm Director of the Institute for Government, and let me just start with the the first basic housekeeping rules. Uh, We are not planning any kind of fire alarm. If one goes off, please go out by the stairs. Um, And the end of housekeeping at that point. Very warm welcome to you and to Geoffrey Cox, Attorney General since the summer of 2018, and MP for Torridge and West Devon since 2005. And he's very kindly agreed to come and talk this morning about the role of Attorney General and the various ways in which it is unusual. And I'm sure there will be a lot of questions. Indeed, uh, I will have a lot of questions, um, but you may as well. And with that, I think uh, not to constrain you any further uh, by a brief in advance, um, uh, please do uh, set out your thoughts on being Attorney General.
1: uh, Thank you very much, Bronwyn. It it, it is... um, (coughs) It's a great surprise for me to find myself uh, here, as it was a surprise to me to find myself as Attorney General. I I had been sitting in a courtroom um, on July the 9th, 2018, when um, the mobile phone buzzed. Now, generally, one doesn't have one's phone on in court, um, but uh, mine was on, and I recognized the number. It was the number of the Chief Whip at the time. Um, Even I hitherto impervious to the blandishments of whips generally, um, and quietly practicing at the bar while uh, serving my constituents on the back benches, felt that I should take that call. And removing myself from court and whispering to my junior that I had to take this call uh, at about 4 o'clock that afternoon, by 9 o'clock I found myself Attorney General. Now, I had not expected a frontline political career. And to some extent, of course, the peculiarity of the Attorney General's role means that um, I still haven't had a front-line political career. Um, because the role that I occupy, I have to say, was the, certainly the pinnacle of my ambition and probably the only role that would have induced me um, to, at that stage of uh, my career at my age, to come into the government... Um, The role is one which combines uh, a necessary and important political element but also uh, is made for and I believe should be occupied by wherever possible someone who has spent a good portion of their life in the practice of the law because the fundamental task of the attorney is to uphold the rule of law within the government it is his task to ensure that the government is obedient to the requirements um, of the law so if there is a dispute between departments as to the meaning of the law or a point of law that affects a critical decision that the government is taken the Ministerial Code and the Cabinet Manual requires that the Attorney General, the Law Officers, and I am one of three of course, the Solicitor General and the Advocate General of Scotland are the other two, but they, the, the Code requires that the Attorney General should be consulted. And on any matter where there is a dispute between departments as to the 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 appropriate interpretation of the law, The Attorney General's word is authoritative in resolving that dispute. And it is vital that as a law officer, one speaks truth unto power. The law officer has to stand as a clear um, and uncompromising uh, defender, not only of the black letter interpretation of the law but also of the legal values that underpin it. So, for example, if legislation has to be uh, or is proposed to be retrospective, even where it would not impinge necessarily upon Article 7 of the Convention on Human Rights or upon any, uh, any, any rule of law, nevertheless, the attorney must be consulted because the legal values that inform our constitution and our legislative system deprecates retrospectivity and requires the law officers assent to it. Uh, and so the law officers really do occupy a unique role in government. Um, it, is, um, it, it is vital, I believe, that there, these officerships are inhabited by those of seniority, um, and people who have spent their lives placing the professional and legal values they've served at the top of their list of priorities. Now that means sometimes you can collide and collide heavily with politics. In my own tenure, I've had possibly some of the most intense uh, months that any Attorney General has had in recent years. And indeed on one occasion one of my colleagues was heard to comment, doesn't Cox do politics? Well um, the answer to that probably is no. The reality is the Attorney General must, I believe, uh, ensure that he gives honest, candid and independent advice to the government and that is what I have always endeavored to do. It is not acceptable, I believe, for an Attorney-General to massage or to improve his advice uh, for the purposes of party politics, and that is what makes this role so unique. Because I am at one, st- at, at, at one time an elected Member of Parliament, I am a party politician, I support the Conservative Party, and I support the Conservative government but I have to have at the same time a, uh, an overriding imperative which is the imperative to advise candidly and frankly and honestly upon the law. And it is these unique offices, I believe, that are one of the distinguishing hallmarks of our constitution. I am one, the only uh, possibly officer left in the uh, um, cabinet because the Attorney General is of Cabinet rank, who um, has this uh, duty, other than of course the Lord Chancellor, and in the old days the Lord Chancellor was a senior judge, and he combined this hybrid role of both being a member of the judiciary and a politician sitting in the Cabinet. Now um, it is really rather more the Attorney General and only the Attorney General. But I do believe that though this seems to be, this office, a contradiction, nevertheless it's these kinds of contradictions, these kinds of complexities in our Constitution that operate to its benefit because my colleagues, knowing that I am a party politician, knowing that I support the government, uh, will be more likely, I think, to take the advice of the Attorney General or to acquiesce in it because they know that he or she shares the cause that they also espouse. So it's a rather, it's a, it's a unique role. It's uh, possibly one that uh, has a, a contradiction at its heart. But I do believe that when any law officer goes into the Attorney General's office for the first time and sees the photographs of former attorneys on the wall, there is something about the tradition of Attorney General that tends to wrap itself around you and make you want to live up to the highest traditions of that office. And I do believe that as much as anything else in our Constitution, it's tradition. It's the tradition of those who have gone before you who have upheld the rule of law and the values of the law that make you, when you inhabit the office, not want to let them and that vital tradition down. And we should never underestimate the importance of tradition. You can't write a tradition down, it can't be expressed in a charter of human rights, but it is as much as anything the traditions that motivate human beings to live up to the best standards of those who'd gone before them. And I certainly believe in the case of Attorney General, no one who inhabits the office that I have had the privilege to serve in would want to let that tradition down. I think that's probably the best introduction I can make at the moment, because I'm ready to accept the grilling that you're about to give. All right, right. thank you. Yeah. And it's,
0: uh, I suspect, yeah. no, not, not, not just me, but thank you very much indeed, yeah. uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey yeah. Fox, for so that account of the role. Let me, let me pick up first then mm. this point about the contradictions, possibly at the heart of it, and how that scene, uh, by the public and by Parliament, and whether that causes confusion in people's mind. So I'm thinking on one hand of, of, a, of a time when you uh, delivered advice that was uh, inconvenient to Theresa May's government uh, on the backstop, um, which uh, probably, seems to me, inspired some MPs to vote against her deal that was then, and you said, look, the UK could be trapped within this. So this, I think, was the occasion when someone said... Doesn't Geoffrey do politics? Yes. Yes. That's, that's All exactly. right. So th- there was an example of you being uh, d- d- definitely uh, giving your advice, uh, uh, and it was not convenient uh, for the government. What about if we move to the the, the point of uh, the, the prorogation debate and whether or not that five-week prorogation was 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 lawful or not? Um, you able to say how you advise the government then?
1: Well, ronald as you know, um, I am bound by the Law Officers Convention. The Law Officers' Convention is, as you know, that I can neither disclose the fact or the substance of advice I've given, Um, and even where parts of my advice might have been leaked, it still isn't appropriate for me to fill out the relevant parts. All I would say is that in relation to prorogation, um, uh, I'm bound by the Convention, but you should not assume from the leaks you've seen. That um, it exhausts the advice that I gave to the government on the subject.
0: Right, where, of course, the Supreme Court um, had a different view from the governments. Well,
1: they certainly did. They had a different view to the governments. And they Un- had a, unanimously. Unanimously, uh, uh, as was the court below, unanimous in the favour of the government. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, it's. I mean, there are disagreements on points of law between senior lawyers. I mean, that that is just, and particularly where you have so. Uh, so. Um, uh, uh, uncertain an area of law where uh, it admits of differing interpretations. The the Court of Appeal uh, gave a resounding judgment in favour of the government, with which um, the Master the mm. of the Rolls and the President of the Green's Bench Division were uh, 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 cons- uh, assenting, and <laughs> the Supreme Court had a different view. That is the law, and um, but I don't think it's necessarily a matter that. Um, should attract um, adverse comment. It's simply in these areas normal, I think.
0: Would you say the same uh, of your advice about, uh, to the government about the Ben Act? We I mean, had the Prime Minister and Michael Gove, um, and the Ben Act came through and said look, the government uh, may be forced to, uh, or it was to, compel the government to ask for an extension to October 31st under some circumstances and, and the government was very cross with this and some doubt was cast over whether or not it would comply with it.
1: Well, again, I mean, I can't. Again, I'm conscious there have been many leaks of this, but uh, you'll understand. I, again, I can't say. I mean, what, what is what advice I gave? But I mean, what you can be absolutely clear about is that in the last 19 months, I have endeavoured with unshaking and unflinching, flinching uh, fidelity to advise on what I took to be the law, Mm. and that the government should obey the law, and as far as I'm concerned, the government has obeyed the law. Uh, In connection with prorogation, it was found ultimately to have taken a wrong judgment on that, but it did so in good faith, in the belief that what it was doing was lawful. Mm.
0: Just just on this theme, uh, this uh, Conservative Party conference of 2018. You gave a big um, the, the theme being that of the uh, two sides of the Attorney General's role, the political as well as the uh, legal, if you like, you give a big uh, speech described as rousing, and uh, um, uh, by another paper as a warm-up act to the prime minister who then came on. Um, in fact, one paper had you possibly tipped to be the next prime minister on the basis of this this speech. Um, and it was very much pro pro. Everybody pro- gets Brexit. tipped at some point. Whether I'm not way. sure that's mm-hmm. completely true, but anyway. <laughs> I, 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 but uh, well done for being among the, uh, the, the 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 ones that passed over. Um, do you think this creates a confusion um, in how people should look at the Attorney General's role? I have to say, on one hand, someone making a big political speech and, on the other hand, giving, as a lawyer, as a QC of many years, giving impartial legal advice.
1: I can understand why, in some of people's minds, it might. And, indeed, I find, to my surprise to this day, even senior colleagues, for whom I have enormous respect at the bar, uh, finding this difficult, usually those who find it difficult are those who don't share one's political convictions. But I find absolutely nothing incompatible with having very strong political convictions and opinions, uh, while at the same time being capable of uncompromisingly objective legal advice. I mean, I, I I simply do not see how the two. Are incompatible. It was said, for example, when I was uh, uh, responding to an urgently urgent question on prorogation, that I had uh, characterised Parliament as a dead Parliament and as uh, having no right to sit. Well, that was my view at the time. I felt that Parliament was, frankly, abdicating its responsibilities. Um, but that did not mean, in any way, that I would give any the less objective and frank and accurate view of the law. So I've, I've, I'm, while I understand it can it can do that, the Attorney General is not a judge. He is the government's mm. chief legal advisor, and he is, his duty is to give that absolutely uncompromisingly accurately. But it doesn't mean that he isn't sitting there with a perfect right in Cabinet to comment on all matters of policy mm. and to... Uh, participate in the fashioning of policy of the government. So I don't see it, but I can understand why people may feel that somehow you are not able to give impartial advice or accurate (laughs) advice uh, while holding strong political views and expressing them. But I do think that that is part of the value of this role, that I as attorney, while committed to the government's cause, as I most certainly am, have also at the same time to ensure that I give absolutely accurate advice, and that is what I've endeavoured to do.
0: When do you think legal advice to the government ought to be public and when not?
1: Well, I'd like to say never, really. Mm. Um, I mean, it is a fact that one of the values that an Attorney General has is that he sits in the Cabinet and he is able to observe as the debate unfolds about a particularly crucial matter of public controversy, how his colleagues are wrestling with it Mm. and he's able to aim his legal advice if it is affected and recently of course these decisions have been heavily affected by questions of law he's able to aim his advice and tailor it for the the particular problems that his colleagues are grappling with Mm. and often it will be phrased in a way or framed in a way that is designed to answer, as he perceives it, that unfolding debate within the cabinet. Now, if it becomes, that will mean that I will sometimes, and I have, express my advice in a particular way, with a particular um, form of language, designed to cut through uh, the specific misconceptions that I may see growing up or matters that require clear clarification. But if I feel that my advice is going to be made public, I'm likely to uh, empty it, frankly. I mean, one will, what will one be producing? If I'd known, for example, that my advice on um, uh, on the deal had been going to be put up on Sky News uh, 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 and with just parts of it highlighted and other parts not, I might have written it differently because I would. I would not want specific sentences to be plucked out of context. So it, it does damage to your ability to be able to advise your colleagues uh, accurately and in a way they need at the time. So I would, frankly, I, there are only very exceptional times when I would think the attorney's advice ought to be public. Um, and um, those might be occasions where, for example, in international law context, the attorney had given. Advice, as is famously the case with Peter Goldsmith's advice in relation to the Iraq war. Oh, it was on my mind as um, we were talking. And, and it may well be that there. Um, that, well, that, to
0: summarize, for those of, yeah. who didn't live through the Iraq war, it was first that it was not legal and then it, that it was legal, Well, in summary. Yeah, Iraq. I
1: mean, in, in that case, the whole center of controversy was on whether or not the, the actions we'd taken as the United Kingdom were uh, within international law. Uh, and, I mean, I. In the ca- my case, the, the, frankly, it was this, I just simply do not accept that there was a, a, a plausible case for the publication of my advice. It was done purely, I believe, for political ends. let me be candid. And um, it was done to uh, undermine the government, which is exactly what the opposition is supposed to do. But I don't believe there was a credible case for this reason. that in the case of an international uh, of going to war, the attorney's advice is central, because if he gave contrary advice, it would be impossible for the government to have done so, it would be contrary to the ministerial code, and it would be put ministers in the position of consciously disobeying the law. But in my case, it was the interpretation of a of an international legal instrument of a, of, of the protocol. Well, there were there were thousands of lawyers who could have reached the same conclusion on that and my opinion was not authoritative um, in in the same way as the attorneys is when it comes to taking a step like going mm. into to war.
0: Mm. So when the, the government was found in contempt of Parliament at the end of uh, 2018 um, for not uh, disclosing legal advice, um, does it matter?
1: Well, it, it, look, it was the product of a minority government it will nev- it will it will only ever happen, I believe where where a government is in a minority um, because in most cases you would expect the government's supporters to ensure that no such thing ever happened and no I mean look i 'll be again I let me be quite candid I think that uh, I think that there was no proper case for uh, the government to have been found in contempt it was it was um, perfectly legitimate for the government to contend that the Law Offices Convention should be respected. And as I've said already, I don't believe there was a proper case for the publication of my advice.
0: It's going to wider questions of, uh, of the courts and whether parts of the judicial system need review. The government's talked about a constitutional commission with all no. kinds of things that might be in it. Um, might be stuff about the House of Lords. Um, Talk about doing something about the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, perhaps separately. Um, but one of the things uh, in its sights um, is judicial review, and obviously we have at the moment this case of the deportations to Jamaica that were frustrated in the, in the, in the government's view when the Court of Appeal said, "Look, some of them are not um, are not valid." And we've had uh, reports of molten rage from Number Ten and Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's advisor, saying um, all kinds of things, saying. Um, that the decision was a perfect symbol of the British state's dysfunction and that there would be urgent action on the fast that judicial review has become. Do you think the government, of all its priorities, all these big things it wants to do, the judicial review is right up there with something that needs reform?
1: Well, let me say straight away, I, I don't think that it's, it's judicial review alone that the government will want to examine. Um, the, the, uh, there is a question, I believe, and a perfectly legitimate question, which more and more people are asking, and people of uh, individuals of very high distinction, um, Jonathan Sumption recently, but he is only the most recent. I'm fact, bi- he was talking
0: about it on this platform a couple of weeks ago. Well, before. there we are,
1: and, um, uh, uh, and a very distinguished um, speaker he, would, he, he was, I, and, and I. I do think there is a question now, of whether or not the judicialization of politics mm. um, requires some uh, amelioration, some some changing of the balance or and has gone too far. I think that that is there is a feeling that it might have done so. and but that isn't just a question uh, of judicial review. I think it's uh, throughout our constitutional arrangements, um, is there a sense that, um, and is it properly justified, and these are the key things the government will have to consider, that um, uh, that the, there has been a move into areas that properly are for those who are elected to decide. Now I, I, I think that will require careful examination, mm. measured, calibrated examination, there will be no rush headlong into uh, impetuous reform. It will have to be examined quite carefully to see what are the proper contours of um, and the proper balance between decisions, those who are elected decision-makers and those who are not. So a colourful comments from um, uh, reported from, from, from um, um, Uh, those inside the government, whether they're accurate or not, I don't think are going to affect the calm and deliberative way that this government will embark upon the process of this review.
0: Well generally, do you think, um, how would you describe the state of public confidence in the courts and judicial system? We've had years of of quite a lot of cuts to um, the justice system generally, something we here at the Institute have written uh, quite a lot about. and I'd, I'd just like you, in these skeptical times we're in, in any case, what, um, how you describe public confidence and whether there is need uh, for the government to take action on that.
1: Well, I, I do think that. I, mm. think, I think there is no doubt that, um, that uh, we do need to uh, see a, a, a period of reinvestment in the mm. administration of justice in my own sphere, being uh, a superintendent of the Crown Prosecution Service and the Serious Fraud Office, the government has taken steps very recently to make a very significant improvement in the resources available to the Prosecution Service, a 15 percent rise in their budget at the end of last year. They were recruiting 500, new prosecutors and uh, uh, more um, paralegals and others. Um, because we see that there is a need now to reinvest in the administration of justice. But you, you, you asked me a question about public confidence. I think I mean that divides up into two things. To go back to the point we were just making, I do think, let us, there is a real risk that those of us who are in Westminster or in the legal professions do not understand or may not understand that out in the country there is a concern about whether or not um, uh, democratically accountable decisions that ought to be taken by democratically accountable politicians are in fact being taken by those who are not elected. Uh, I don't only mean judges. I think that there is a widespread Feeling, And you could argue that what we've seen over the last three years is partly a counter-reaction to that, of a disconnection between ordinary people and their votes and what happens here in Westminster uh, and more widely throughout our government. Mm. And so I, I think that what the government has to look at is how we may make a difference to that so as to restore the feeling to millions of people. Um, that they are not powerless to Mm. affect the great themes and issues that um, affect their own lives. So I do think there is an issue of public confidence, but it's partly a consequence of that, and it's partly a consequence of the fact that the administration of justice uh, does need some program of reinvestment. Mm. But it also needs to change.
0: Your name has floated round in some of the discussion of the Constitutional Commission as a possible head of it. Is
1: that something that would appeal to you? Uh, well, I, the conventional answer to that is that anything, of course, that the prime minister sought to, uh, to, to duty gave me. I, I would be keen to examine. Yes, look, I, I mean, it's a it's a subject which, is attorney general, uh, I would want to pay great and close attention to, um, and. Um, Uh, It is clearly an important part of what the government wants to do. But I I would urge people not to reach uh, too hasty a judgements about this. There is going to be no headlong rush to curtail either the independence of the judiciary or the legitimate function of the judiciary in making certain that the rule of law is upheld. Uh, by the government, um, the, the the question of reform here will be a, a one that we'll need to go into with great care.
2: Mm.
0: Is that commission actually going to happen?
1: Well, I think it will. I mean, it, in fact, I'm I little doubt that it will. I mean, I, you shouldn't necessarily expect that it will be a, uh, a commission uh, with um, you know, reporting for several years. I mean. Mm. What what there will be is is a group that's set up, I think, um, a commission or a committee to examine the scope. Indeed, that scope is already under careful examination now of what it is we think needs to be done, where we think more work needs to be done to scope Mm. and investigate. Mm. Um, And um, I think it will certainly happen and it should happen this year.
0: Mm. We're on the edge of a reshuffle probably tomorrow morning we're told. Do you expect to be in the cabinet tomorrow night?
1: Oh, but Ronald, I would be be wholly wrong of me to speculate about that. Whatever the Prime Minister decides, it is entirely his prerogative, Mm. and I shall be uncomplaining in either case.
0: Thank you very much indeed. (laughs) I wasn't implying it was because of anything you've just said. (laughs) Um, Geoffrey Cox, thanks very much indeed. Pleasure. Pleasure. All right, let's start here. Lots of hands up. I'm going to start uh,
1: here in the front. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, Joshua Rosenberg, can Roger. I follow
2: up Bronwyn's last question to you? It struck me that your opening remarks sounded a bit like a valedictory speech. I wonder if you've actually had enough of this job. And you went on then to say that the Attorney General should be
1: a person of seniority, uh, presumably both seniority in the law leading Silk perhaps, and seniority in the Commons, somebody who's perhaps served in the Commons for a long time. Are there such people left in the Commons, apart from you yourself, um, if it was necessary to replace you? Um, And does this, um,
2: if the answer to that is there are not very many, um, does this suggest that the, the role of the Attorney General is becoming increasingly untenable? And, and we need to change it into
1: um, more of a civil service role, rather than trying to find somebody who's a senior lawyer and a senior member of parliament. Well, as I expect, Joshua, two very, very good questions. The first, I shall duck. Um, <laughs> Vanavictory, look, I, I have been expecting to leave this office every month that I've been in it. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we had a minority government, and. Um, um, uh, uh, Have I had enough of the job? Let me make plain, absolutely not. This has been one of the greatest, in fact, the greatest honor of my professional life. I've had the enormous pleasure and privilege of working with some of the most distinguished and able lawyers I have ever met inside the Government Legal Department and the Attorney General's Office. They are faithful to their duty. They are utterly diligent and indefatigable in the service of the public, and it has been an, one of the greatest privileges of my life to serve with them, and if you gave me the opportunity to continue, I would embrace it uh, eagerly, but equally, if, if it is not to be, well then, uh, there are other doorways that will open for me, uh, and of course, I, I uh, have the great, uh, uh, great um, advantage of having a profession, which I also love and which is vital to the health and well-being of of our country, namely the bar, the independent bar. So um, that's my answer to your first question. Now, your second, if I may say so, is uh, rather more important uh, than my individual fate, and that is the role of the attorney. Um, And I agree with you that one of the problems that we have at the moment is that our political life is not as it once used to attracting senior professionals from the legal profession. And frankly, whether that's the bar or the solicitor's profession, it perhaps doesn't matter. Um, and that is a concern to me and I've spoken about it before. I spoke at the bar conference last year in which I urged my colleagues to contemplate um, entering politics. You, aren't, you can understand why they don't. It has been made much more difficult. Uh, for a senior member of the bar to go into politics, but I do think that those of us who are senior at the bar ought to consider whether or not, out of a spirit of public service, politics is a sphere they should go into because the Attorney General and the the Solicitor General's roles do depend on people of weight and seniority uh, in the profession being willing to go into politics to put up with the stresses and strains of that. Um, You you say, are the people? Yes, I do actually believe there are people in the House who, if not now, and I certainly think now may very well be, uh, they may well be able to do so now, who are available, but I take your general point that that they're perhaps fewer than they used to be. Um, And on that question, it is vital that we should encourage more to go into the Commons there are, of course, there is the Lords, and uh, as you know, there have been some distinguished attorneys in the Lords. Gareth Williams was uh, a, man, a friend of mine and a man I knew well and had enormous respect for Labour attorney uh, in the early part of the century, and he, um, uh, he, he's an example, but I think it's generally desirable it should be in the Commons, and the point you make is well taken.
0: Thanks. Right, right at the back, there was – yes, thanks. And then I'll I'll try and get. We've got at the moment good time.
2: Say thank you very much indeed for um, having this meeting this morning. My name is Maxine Kerr, and I'm a campaigner for the Human Rights for the Unborn. And uh, what we feel basically that the government have violated many of the human rights articles. Um, regarding the rights for the unborn inside the womb. And I believe that um, the Abortion Act of 1967 clearly passes sell by date. Ma- Maxine, and it's time, you, it's time could you, for it to change. Could you make a question? So I just want the question basically is how would you, um, Sir Jeffrey Cox, advise um, the government on changing policies and laws? to reflect the fact that they are, the human, sorry, the unborn have human rights and we've violated their uh, equality and inclusivity and discriminated against the unborn. How do you answer that question, please? Thank you.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you, Maxine, for the question. And I I, I know how strongly and how heartfelt uh, many feel on this subject. And and I have considerable sympathy with the point of view that you espouse. I have supported um, reductions in the periods, for example, uh, permissible for abortion. But that is my own private stance of conscience. These matters in the House, as you will know, are invariably not matters for uh, party politics. They are matters of conscience on which each individual member of Parliament makes up their own mind. And I think it's been like that for a considerable time. So it's not so much that the government espouses a policy on this, it is the fact that Parliament as a whole, whenever it's had an opportunity to vote on this question, has maintained the status quo, broadly speaking, in connection with uh, abortion and the Abortion Act.
0: You're making the point that it is a political decision, not a party political one, but it is a political exactly. one for Parliament, not it, it, a point of legal
1: it advice. It is. It's not a matter for the government. It's a matter for each and every member of Parliament. And so as Attorney General, I'm uh, well, advising the government. It's not a matter on which I would tend. Indeed, I've not had any opportunity to advise on it. Thank
0: you. Uh, Maxine, Maxine, I'm sorry.
2: Maxine. Maxine, Maxine, forgive forgive me, but a
0: lot of people want to ask questions. I really understand the passion behind what you're asking, and you can perhaps bring it up afterwards, but there are a lot of hands up on many different questions. But thank you for yours. Uh, Right here in the front. Uh, Hello. Um, I'd like to ask about uh, this issue of judicial review, because the uh, Conservative Manifesto uh, said they wanted to stop judicial reviews being used uh, to conduct politics by another means or create needless delays. I just want to ask, if uh, the parties bringing a judicial review, essentially win their case in court, is that not strong evidence that the judicial review has been brought on an entirely valid point of law, rather than trying to conduct politics by another means or create needless delays? Thank you. Would you if you'd like to say who you are, you're always uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Jiminder. I'm a freelance journalist.
1: Yeah. Uh, look, as I've said already, um, Getting the balance right in this area is not going to be, there's going to be no headlong rush to uh, to curtail judicial review. Um, but there is a perfectly legitimate, legitimate question as to whether or not in certain respects courts are now taking decisions which in fact would be more legitimately and appropriately taken by Parliament. And the precise contours of that will take from some quite subtle and complex thought and examination. Um, But I think there is that view, and it's long predated recent controversies. It's been growing, Jonathan Sumption has taken a not dissimilar view in his recent writings but there have been many others before. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to, there may well be cases where a court decides on a particular question. The question is, ought the Court to be deciding that question? Not that the Court has done any wrong in making that decision, but ought the law to be resolving it or ought it to be resolved by democratically elected representatives in Parliament. Now, that is the fundamental question and how we get that balance right is what the Commission will need to look at.
0: Thank you. Over here, second row.
1: Graham Allen, <coughs> former colleague of uh, Jeffrey's in the House and now convener of the Citizens Convention on UK Democracy. No, Geoffrey, many of us welcome very, very strongly uh, the government's commitment to have a commission on the constitution, democracy and legal affairs. Um, we are also concerned to support that by ensuring that citizens have some way in which they can influence the commission. Uh, you'll be aware of... <laughs> citizens assemblies, conventions, etc. indeed all four parties, UK parties, committed to something along the lines that the government is now pursuing. Would you tell us how you see ordinary people, citizens, Mm. being able to engage effectively in this process uh, and feed their views in, perhaps through some sort of prior citizens assembly or convention?
0: Thank you very much for that question. Interesting.
1: It is, and and Graham, if I may say so, um, I, I think I should be clear from the beginning: we are still looking at the precise scope of the commission, the precise format of the commission. I think we have some uh, early ideas about it, and there have been discussions among ministers in connection with it, and we've uh, we've been uh, reflecting carefully. But I do think, uh, as you do, that if the um, if the if the commission extended um, to areas, for example, um, looking at questions of a bill of rights i'm not saying it will go that far and i'm not saying that that is on the necessarily on the to do list uh, but i personally believe that if we were to consider a bill of rights that the most widespread cons- consultation with the people of this country because you see what i think why i think there has always been a case for a bill of rights and i've long supported it is that there is a sense in which the Convention on Human Rights doesn't feel as if it's owned by the British people. Uh, The great advantage that a Bill of Rights would give us, particularly if we got the consultation right, and I would envisage a massive programme of citizens' consultation on this, is that you could at last marry up the affections of the British people for its own Bill of Rights. I don't actually think that, save among certain circles, um, the convention attracts the same affection. Do you? I think probably not. But uh, but when we speak of our own Bill of Rights from the 17th century, there is a genuine affection for it. So if we could produce that sense of ownership um, of the ordinary people for their Bill of Rights, I think it would be a hugely constructive thing for us to do. Now, I repeat, uh, I'm not going to make the error of allowing people to believe that we've got on the table a Bill of Rights at this stage. We haven't decided the full scope, but I do see a place for serious consultation, and I'm interested very much in the ideas you proposed to to me in writing recently.
0: Uh, Here here on the aisle, um, uh, and then I'll I'll come to you after. Thanks line from the Press Association: Would it concern you if you were to lose your job because of your apparent reluctance to play party politics with your advice?
1: Um, listen, um, it's been an enormous privilege to do this job, um, and and I, um, I, the Prime Minister, it is his complete prerogative to decide which team he puts around him, um, and if I were not to be Attorney General. Um, shortly, uh, then um, I do not believe that it would be for any such reason. So um, you you asked me an entirely hypothetical question, the premise of which
2: I don't accept.
0: (laughs) Here here in the second row.
2: Thanks. Danny Shaw from the BBC. Two quick questions, Ms. Cox.
0: Danny, if you can make it. Please. Yes, I will make them very quick. No, well, one, um, well are well you concerned
2: after. that the government's moves on the terror sentencing changes, so that they would apply to prisoners who've already been convicted, who are already serving their sentences, but will now be told that they can only be released if the parole board says so after at least two thirds, sets a dangerous precedent in terms of retrospect, in terms of being retrospective, which I think you um, cautioned against earlier in your earlier remarks. Second question is, you're a candid man, you're an honest man. Will you now accept, given the fact you said we need to reinvest in the justice system, that the cuts to the police, probation, prisons, legal aid, the courts,
1: went too far? Well, let me deal with your first one. Um, uh, I fully support the uh, measures that are being taken in the House of Commons today. Um, The... um, in my judgment and in the judgment of the government um, there is no uh, illegality on the contrary the um, relevant declaration of compatibility has been made in connection with this legislation and that is because the jurisprudence a uh, convention jurisprudence shows that uh, questions relating to arrangements for release do not violate article 7 now you raise a, a different point because you, are, you say to me, as I said, that sometimes retrospectivity raises values rather than uh, simple questions of black letter law, or even complicated ones. Um, now on that subject, let me be playing. I think there is a plain public interest in this change being made. We've had two incidents in recent days, um, and I think that the government is responding to a legitimate and powerful um, uh, public interest in, in ensuring uh, that those who may well be a risk will from now on be subjected to a risk analysis before they're released. And I think that's a legitimate uh, public interest and retrospectivity will yield wherever the public interest for it requires and outweighs it, and in this case I think it does.
0: The second one was on whether cuts to the justice system had gone too far.
1: Um, I I don't think I can say that. Um, The the inevitable uh, retrenchment that the justice system has experienced in recent years has been part and parcel of an overall economic policy that I believe was necessary. Um, I think it, it was economically necessary for this country and it is inevitable in those circumstances that areas will have to put go through a tightening of the belt, which no doubt uh, has uh, adverse consequences in certain respects. But I do think uh, that the time has come now where it's got to stop, and that we need to reinflate inflate um, aspects of our uh, administration of justice. Uh, and I believe that is what the government is now committed to doing. In my own sphere, I've explained already the largest single settlement the Crown Prosecution Service has ever received was given to it at the end of last year. And I believe the same will apply in other respects of our system.
0: Here on the aisle and then I'm going to try and get a few people from the back.
2: Uh, Robert Shumsey from the Financial Times. Um, Given the potential sensitivity and the potentially far-reaching nature of the commission that we've been discussing, do you think it's necessary to have opposition figures or opposition representation on it? The last
1: time this kind of constitutional um, change was contemplated was by the Blair government uh, in the early 2000s. I don't recall a great deal of consultation at the time by uh, that government. On the contrary, I seem to recall changes, frankly, emerging very quickly with very little consultation uh, and the creation of the Supreme Court, for example. I don't recall a great deal of opposition involvement. But let me be clear, Um, as Graham has asked me, my own preference would be to see certainly public consultation. Um, I do not think this is a case for a constitutional convention. Uh, We are looking at much more likely to be precise and specific changes. rather than a sort of broad reflection upon our constitutional arrangements. So no, I think the government has a mandate. It won a very handsome majority. But any wise government is bound, I think, to try, as insofar as possible, to seek the widest possible assent for its changes. I think it's probably expecting a lot to expect the opposition to agree, but I do think there is an area for engagement with ordinary citizens in this country, and I hope the government will consider it.
0: We're coming to the end. Let me take two together at the end, and I'm afraid it's going to have to be um, the last the last ones. Uh, and sorry, I can probably see got three hands. We've got ten
2: minutes.
0: We've got ten minutes. Yeah, We won't be able to get – let me take two anyway and see where we are after those two.
2: Thank you. Um, yeah, Nick Bowman from Mandarin, um, you talked a little bit about a fall in public confidence in the judiciary, um, and it feels as though some of that falling confidence is a result of repeated utterances from the government and also from the media. And as a result of that, you're saying we need to have a constitutional commission. Um, That feels as though that's a politically driven thing and is potentially very dangerous.
1: Well, I mean, let me be clear. I I didn't say a fall in confidence in the judiciary. On the contrary, let me say straight away that my belief is that we are exceptionally fortunate in our judiciary. We have a fiercely independent judiciary, which is what each and every one of us would wish to see, uh, and it is uh, of very high caliber. So I, I, uh, I don't believe it's so much that. What I have pointed towards is that there is a question and I believe it's a question that is uh, is is, is a, quite a widespread feeling that decisions are being taken by courts that properly ought to be taken by Parliament, and and but getting the precise balance, the precise line between the two is very difficult, and we need to examine it very carefully, um, and. Uh, So I I, I don't believe for a moment that what we're talking about has grown up in the last year or two. I think that this gradual feeling that more and more decisions are being taken, the courts are being used, if you like, as a a kind of uh, forum for the political battle um, in areas where perhaps it ought to be fought out in Parliament. Uh, is is a legitimate one. The question is, what does it imply for detail? Now, the Commission is simply a means for this government to examine these questions in a calm and deliberative way and reach proper and measured conclusions about what steps it ought to take, if any, to ameliorate that position. Just as the Blair government did in the early 2000s, The Conservative government intends to look at those constitutional arrangements and see if they can't be improved. And I think there's a feeling among many that they probably can be, but that doesn't mean some major constitutional changes with sudden abrogation of the the scope of judicial review. We are talking about precise, concrete changes and reforms that will make a clear, clear difference to these particular problems that the Commission identifies, if it does.
0: Great. Um, more hands are going up. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna try and respect those who have got their hands up first, so right, right against. Sorry? We've got a few, we've got yeah,
2: a few yeah, minutes, yeah. Uh, Louis Flood, parliamentary researcher. You mentioned previously that a US-style appointment system for judicial appointments would be a wholly retrograde set So in light of that, how should, if at all, the process
1: for appointing judges
2: be reformed in the UK?
1: Well, that is certainly one area that the Commission will be looking at. Let me make plain, with no desire to see politically appointed judges, that is completely off the table. There is no question of, of politicians appointing judges. We have a good system now. Uh, the Judicial Appointments Commission, Um, we're not going to be talking about a party politically appointed set of judges. Um, However, I think there is a case for looking at how Supreme Court judges are appointed. Um, The reality at the moment is that we, um, we, uh, we need to look at how precisely that is done. Um, in consultation with the judiciary. Um, And I've made plain in the House of Commons that I would oppose uh, US-style hearings. But I have to say that one of the things that is worth looking at in my view is how it's done in Canada. In Canada now, for appointments to the Supreme Court, uh, there is a committee uh, of the Canadian Parliament that will carry out Uh, interviews. uh, In our country, it could be a joint committee of the House of Lords and the House of Commons under clear guidance. There would be rules as to the questions that could be asked, but what it would lend potentially is transparency to um, a a position which uh, people have seen has enormous power. Um, Now, I'm not saying that that is something that I would support, but it's something I think the Commission may need to look at. Um, we need to see what the consequences are. But the Lord, the Chief Justice of Canada has recently commented that he now thinks it's indispensable to public confidence in the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, I don't think we could simply rule these things out, uh, but certainly nobody's talking about political appointed, politically appointed judges or US-style appointment hearings. The committee that I'm speaking of wouldn't have the power to appoint. It would simply be a, a question of interviewing, as indeed judges now appear before committees in the House.
0: Thank you, and I think we've really got time for one more. Um, a, a take, uh, two more. On, uh, on the aisle, can we take two more? You two, think? Thank you for your generosity. Okay, we'll get two more in.
2: Uh, Paul Wallace, I'm a journalist. Um, the British Executive is usually seeing as having great power
1: relative to other countries, and hasn't judicial review essentially evolved as a necessary, a wholly necessary check on the arbitrary decisions, and often incorrect decisions taken by officials. Uh, The the cases that I've read, I see uh, ordinary people coming forward and protesting against decisions which affect them, things like universal credit, for example, and the courts intervening because they think the legislation has been misinterpreted by officials, by officials. Yes, and that is the core function of judicial review, with which I don't think anybody would, which anybody would contest. Um, the, the rule that the, the courts have rightly evolved to scrutinise administrative decisions of the government of the executive, uh, and to ensure that they apply the law correctly. Uh, and uh, uh, apply proper principles of administration. Um, I don't think anybody is doubting that. As I've said, however, there are a a group of of cases where you could argue that the courts have gone into areas uh, that more legitimately would be decided by elected representatives. The problem is identifying which those cases are, and identifying a correct prescription for it. But I think we have to try, because I do think there is a risk of public confidence if we continue to see what some people have described as the judicialization of politics. There are some cases that really are the continuation of the political battle by means of the courts. And sometimes those things may be legitimate, other times there may be a case, it seems to us, or certainly seems to me anyway, uh, for looking at them and seeing whether or not it's appropriate those decisions are taken in the courts. But let me say at once, your very question tends to presuppose that what the government has in mind is some serious curtailment or abrogation of the ability of the courts to make certain that administrative decisions comply with the rule of law. That is not the intention of the government. I have spent my life in the courts, I believe in their value, I believe profoundly in the need for independent judiciary and I am proud of the judiciary and the systems that we have. There is going to be no prospect at all that we curtail in any inappropriate or improper way the function of the courts as you'd properly describe it.
0: I'm incredibly sorry. Uh, we're going to have to finish there on that ringing note and rebuttal. Um, perhaps you, uh, other people want to come and uh, ask questions afterwards. Um, yes, please. Jeffrey be. Cox uh, uh, might, and I know there's still a couple of hands up. Um, thank you for terrific questions, and I w- want to uh, uh, just say to Jeffrey Cox, thank you for answering so many questions, very frankly, for giving us uh, your account of the role of Attorney General, and indeed for giving so much detail on the Constitutional Commission which to some of us seemed like a rather insubstantial uh, thing, but I, I look forward to seeing how it develops.
1: So thank you very much. It's yeah. been a great Thank
0: you. Thank you.